Hey, what's up, guys? I have a special announcement to make. May 6th and May 7th, I will be hosting an event here in San Antonio, Texas, at my home, at the new stadium that I'm building in my backyard, Estadio Libertad. It is a two-day event meant to showcase San Antonio and to showcase a little bit of chingazos and fire style. Um, I've been, uh, it'll be close, it'll be close to a year uh, around that time uh, that I would have been doing the podcast. So I want to also celebrate that. And I also want to celebrate some, uh, some boxing on that event because Cinco de Mayo weekend is one of the two biggest boxing days, basically like our Super Bowls um, of the year. And every year, if I'm not in Vegas to check out the fight, then I'm having a big party here at my house. So I'm going to be having a party. I want to invite you guys. So um, May uh, May 6th and 7th, uh, that Friday, what we'll do is uh, I will have take a personal tour with you guys and show you around the city. But this is not a... Hey, uh, let's go check out the Alamo kind of tour. This is going to be a tour of uh, of, of my style, uh, checking out some uh, boxing gyms that have had champions come out of it, checking out some uh, neighborhoods where some of the oldest narco corridos, uh, um, you know, true narco corridos, uh, where they started. A lot of these songs kind of show you the neighborhood of uh, the streets that are named on there, kind of give you a little bit of background history. Uh, and there's so much stuff in the in San Antonio history that uh, is more, uh, uh, how would you say, uh, uh, my style that uh, isn't uh, uh, your normal way of, uh, of checking out San Antonio. Um, so for sure, we'll do that on a Friday. Um, uh, we'll for sure get to uh, go to a couple bars and hang out, have conversations, talk about all kinds of cool stuff that I think you would enjoy. And then on a Saturday, I will have a uh, a party here at my home. Um, it's uh, it's meant to be here at the stadium. And the stadium, when I built it, it wasn't meant just to be a place to hang out with family and friends and have a, a good competitive games back there. It was also a place to showcase uh, uh, speakers that I'm interested in. And also in this event, if uh, you come out to this event, this isn't a Hey, uh, let's just check out the speakers. It's uh, if you want to get on the mic, I will definitely give you some time to get on the mic. Uh, I want to hear uh, everyone out that comes to this event. So if this is something that interests you, I'm working out all the details of uh, of who some of the special guests might be. Um, definitely going to be a, a lot of uh, Texas vatos that are going to come speak here. But, you know, uh, as as the details uh, roll out, I will update you. But for sure, if you're interested in this uh, event and want some details, um, uh, be sure to email. I'm going to put the email right here. Uh, it's uh, loslibertinos210 at gmail.com. And I will email you uh, details. And uh, man, I look forward to uh, having this event. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be a, 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 an awesome experience for uh, myself and for you. And I feel that whatever ends up being the, 
the the ticket price to uh, admission, I'm going to give you a uh, more value than that um for sure cuz uh you know, some people might say bad things about me, probably not too many because I really don't fuck with people, but even those people wouldn't say that uh I don't know how to host here at my home and I do. So uh if you're going to be a guest here, uh, you best believe that uh you're going to have a good time. So um Again, email loslibertinos210 at gmail.com. Uh, on the subject line, just put a Cinco de Mayhem event. And, uh, you know, we'll start uh, communicating here a little bit and, uh, and and getting this going. But uh, I appreciate it if you come out. And I hope you do. And see you uh, that weekend. And uh, don't forget, puro chingazos and fire. Peace. everyone to Los Libertinos podcast. I am your host, Carlos Abelard, and this is Chingazos and Fire episode number 34. Our guest today is Marta Bueno. She is a Cuban as fuck liberty activist based out of Miami, Florida. She is a mother of four, an entrepreneur, a real estate investor, a realtor, and a candidate for the Miami-Dade uh, Commissioner District 10. And uh, most importantly, something cool that uh, that I like ab- about uh, what she has going on is uh, she's also a uh, advocate for uh, getting medicines and first aid uh, supplies to uh, Cubans in need. Uh, welcome, Marta, for uh, coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so some of the people uh, that listen to the show, I consider like half like libertarians that that listen and then the other Half maybe is like family and primos that uh, might listen to my show. But uh, for the people that uh, don't know um, some of your story, your background, can you kind of tell us about it? And uh, feel free to take your time because uh, your uh, background story, especially, you know, a little couple of generations back is uh, interesting. So, uh, you know, if you don't mind uh, getting into that a little bit. Sure, I'd love to. Um, So I guess you're talking about my parents and my parents have a pretty unique story. My Parents grew up in Cuba and um, they were children when when Fidel took power. And so uh, around the 1969, 1970, my father was, you know, in his early 20s. He was a uh, young man and um, he realized that he had no future. He wanted to go study for veterinarian. And in Cuba, you don't get to choose. You take an exam and in Cuba, they tell you this is what you're going to, you know, this is what you're good at. This is what uh, you can do. And on top of that, you must be part of the Cuban uh, communist regime. You have to go do military service and you have to be part of it. And my father realized this isn't the future he wanted. He wasn't going to be able to work in Cuba. Again, if you're not part of the regime, you won't be able to eat. You can't feed yourself outside of it. So he decided to try and leave. And on his first attempt, he got caught. And when he got caught, he was sent to jail for a six-year term, which 
you know, I, I hop on planes all the time and leave the US. So for me, this is just one of those concepts that's like mind blowingly insane, right? Trying to get on, uh, you know, trying to leave your country is somehow a crime in Cuba. So he was given a six year sentence. And the first six months, he served it in a political prison, you know, hardcore jail. Um, where they tried to brainwash him and and stuff. And my dad played along and he's like, oh, yes, Fidel, the revolution. It's wonderful, of course. And for that, he was given good behavior and he was allowed to go work in the fields, uh, basically a gulag. And, um, you know, he he did this. And at about a year, my grandmother had planned this whole thing to get him out of jail. Um, you know, she set everything up. She was going to do it. She found drivers and and whatnot to be able to, you know, car and gasoline in Cuba. Everything is just so difficult. So um, you have to go by La Libreta. You know, in Cuba, your your rations are um, this much gasoline if you have a car and and my uh, this the, these tires for your car. And and he, he, my grandmother had to like manage all of that, but then the day came. No, explain that a little bit. What do you mean, like so? Libre, meaning like of uh, like finances, or it was a uh, libreta, like as how people knew. Like, what what do you mean? I, I, actually, so I, I'm interested. You, sure, um, and it's still to this day in, in Cuba. In order to be able to purchase, it's a ration book, and this happens in in socialist communist oh, countries I've never all heard around of that. the world. Yeah, so they give you a a book, and they tell you, for example, right now in Cuba, every month you're entitled to per person. I think it's six eggs. Um, a bottle of oil, some rice, some beans. And um, I believe it's about six pounds of chicken per, per person um, per month. So these are the type of things. Back then, um, you know, I'm sure you've seen pictures in Cuba. They all have the, you know, the 1950s cars because that's what was in Cuba at the time. Um, my mother's father had a car before the revolution, and that's the car that the family had. So, you know, it's an old it was an older car. Imagine in, in the 70s already. That was a, probably, you know, 15, 20 year old car. Um, and so you're only allowed to buy the things that are in the ration book. So if you need gas and the jail that my father was in was almost across Cuba. So if they were going to drive to this, you know, to break them out of jail, they needed other people's ration books. So my grandmother went around and found tires for the car and found um, found a driver to drive it or she found two people to help drive. She found uh, people donated their 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 gas to my grandmother and her cause. Um, people donated, you know, things that they needed. And she planned this whole thing, but then the day happened and my grandmother, you know, she got cold feet and she's like, I don't think I can do it. And my mom had just had my, my, uh, my brother, you know, my, my dad had been in jail for a year. He hadn't been able to see his son. And um, my mom was like, you know what? I'm going to do it. Somebody's got to do it. If you're not doing it, I guess it'll be me. And she traveled across Cuba with these two men she had never met before driving a car that she didn't know how to drive, going to a place she, you know, she wasn't prepared for this 21 year old um, a badass really, and made it to where they were supposed to meet up. And it was supposed to be my dad and his cousin. They were together when they were caught. And it ended up being like my dad and his cousin and like 10 other friends, you know, just all of a sudden, because I guess when they were trying to escape, other people noticed and they're like, Hey, we're coming with you. So all of a sudden it turns into a clown car. My mom had to, you know, have, she's like, I didn't, she didn't have clothes for everyone. You know, they're wearing their, their prison jumpsuits. And she's like, they did the best they could dropped off the other people as they, as they went and um, left my father in a town that borders the Guantanamo Bay um, prison. It, well, it, the, the Guantanamo Bay um, American base. 
And so um, the first time my dad got caught, he tried to go through land to Guantanamo Bay. And there's a lot of trees. There's a lot of growth. Uh, my dad got lost and didn't make it. So this time he decided that he was he's a much better swimmer, I guess. And um, he hid out for about a month in this town. Uh, some he, they had my grandmother had prearranged, you know, of somebody that was sympathetic with the cause to, for him to stay hidden in their house for about a month. And so at the end of the month, he escaped through an outhouse, you know, where people go to the bathroom. It's not the, you know, not the greatest story there. Um, he, he escaped through the outhouse and made it into the bay. And there's a, a, an island between, um, you know, that town and between Guantanamo Bay. And my dad made it to that island. And there's an American soldier that guards from that little piece of land. And he pulled my father up and said, welcome to America. And that's how my dad made it to the U.S. And so from there, this story gets a lot less dramatic. Um, you know, my dad worked really hard, was able to get my mom, my brother, and uh, his parents and his brother. Uh, my uncle at the time was like 12 or 13. Could, so. could I, uh, and so, because I'm asking, because this is all new to me. I've never actually talked to I don't think I probably have, but like a Cuban, like, uh, you know, like the, cause you know, I, I'm a Mexicano or make Mexican style. So I know the, the immigration stuff of over here kind of stuff. So does the, uh, if you're, uh, once your dad did that, like, uh, the, what I've kind of always like, did the Mex did the, did the Cuban government then get mad at your family or did like, did they get, was there anything that happened to them? Like, Hey, you're, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because I only know it. The only Cuban stuff that I know as far as like when they leave is like through sports. It always happens in baseball. It always happens in boxing. You know, the, the they go in the Olympics and then they just uh, they just split. They, just, they just stay in the other country. Like so. So what like what happened? Like once he was an American, he was able to like or not, you know, on American land, he was able to advocate, you know, get them over here. Or like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Okay. So I have to point out that my dad left Cuba in, you know, the early 70s, back when we didn't have these restrictions on immigration. As a matter of fact, the moment my dad touched that land that because it was an American base, he was on American soil. Therefore, um, he immediately got his citizenship. I mean, it was almost, you know, it's very quickly. Um, the only thing stopping my father from pulling the family out of Cuba at that point was getting enough money to do so. And he wasn't able to bring them out directly. My father was able to bring them out through Mexico, actually. Mm -hmm. um, he brought my family from uh, Cuba to Mexico City, where they stayed for about six to eight months. I don't remember the exact time frame. And then he was able to get him into the U.S. He was living in um, Elizabeth, New Jersey at the time, which is a huge Cuban community. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's it, it, when we look at the immigration laws and how they've changed, now a Cuban comes to the U.S. or a Mexican or anybody, you know, really. And it's, it's, a, it's very difficult, it's very difficult to get that position. We were blessed. And that's the only way I can I can say it. And that's why I believe so strongly in um, immigration. You know, what would have happened to us had the United States not have had these policies? And we can look around the world at Haiti and countries that really need this help. Venezuela, you know, they really want to be able to immigrate. And we've we've turned into a different country, one that doesn't necessarily believe in that freedom. But anyways, I digress. Um, my mom, my mom uh, lived in Mexico for a little while, and then my dad was able to get him out and into the U.S. And then, um, you know, he was just really a hard worker. He, 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 you know, he, he tells the story of when he got to America, he lived on somebody's couch for a while, and he would eat maybe one meal a day to make sure that he could save up every single penny he made to get his family out of Cuba. 
And so um, he he got a job working at a, like a, a selling windows in Harlem. I mean, I guess they figured, well, we'll send the Cuban dude and he'll probably fail miserably. But actually, he became the best salesman for this window mm-hmm. company and won a um, a trip to Venezuela and um, a cruise ship that stopped in Venezuela. And when he got to Venezuela, he's like, wow, this place is amazing. I want to start. My dad was a farmer uh, before the revolution. My grandfather owned a farm and was a farmer, uh, was a veterinarian, actually. And so my dad grew up on a farm and he's, he always had this vision. So my dad, you know, put together his money and um, moved the family to Venezuela and was one of the first people to bring artificial insemination and embryo transfer technologies in the early 70s to Venezuela, mm. back when Venezuela was a great country. And um, I was almost born there. I was born in the United States because my grandparents lived here. And at nine days old, I went back to Venezuela. And I have had a relationship with going back and forth between the two countries until I was about 15, right before Chavez took power in Venezuela. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's like socialism just seems to follow me around. I often that's my joke, right? It's like, you know, my parents left the the Cuban dictatorship. They moved to Venezuela. They started a life there and they had to upend everything, leave everything behind again because then it happened again in Venezuela. Now we're here in the United States and I'm not saying we're there yet, but man, this looks really familiar to what we've seen before, right? This authoritarian behavior and governments telling us what, what we can and can't do and all of those things. So um, about myself, um, I, I had a kid early. I became a mom at 21 and decided I was going to be a stay-at-home mom. And then after a few months, I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I decided to start a company, um, started it right on my kitchen table. And, um, you know, it became the little engine that could and just was a great little company. Uh, Then we had a whole bunch of hurricanes come through Miami and completely destroy my business. So then I started all over again. And um, that's the last company I exited from. I started one with my mom when I was 17, too, which is still going strong. So um, very proud of, of my little you know, I, I, I kind of say that I, I was the little, you know, 21 year old Latina without an education. Um, I, I should have been one of the statistics, right? I should have been one of those people that just has a kid after another kid. I, like you said, I have four, um, you know, I, I, the American dream was alive and well for me. Um, I worked really hard and had, you know, created these, these, this, I turned this idea into an action and pursued it. And the last company that I built and exited, um, I'm very proud of it. It, um, I left it in 2016 and it's still going. And when I left it, it sold $50 million a year and had over a hundred employees. I mean, that's awesome. Just, yeah. I've, I've, you know, I got really lucky and I worked really hard. And um, now that I have, you know, I, I'm in a different place in life. I can dedicate myself to helping other people. I am a firm believer that the opportunities that this country afforded me, I want to pay it forward. And I want to pay it forward with my neighbors and um, my city. And because this is where I live and this is where my kids live. And this is where the people I care about most in the world live. And I'm sick and tired of people spending all this money on taxes to not get anything in return and um you know going through all these hard times uh now with covid for example how many businesses you know were shut down and whatnot and yet our taxes keep going up so i just 
you know, I know this is beyond the part of about me, but this is about me. This is why I'm doing it. This is my why. I am a big believer in helping other people because those opportunities that were given to me, many, many, many more people should be able to have them as well. Yeah. So you, um, you uh, are like the, at least for me, at least that I've noticed, like the most uh, visible uh, Latina that speaks, you know, good Spanish and all that. And uh, so you're advocating for like liberty ideas, um, you know, aimed towards Spanish speaking people to bring them into the movement. I'm uh, kind of doing that too in my own way. Uh, but um, uh, so now I'm just asking kind of like what, what have been, what's been the pushback obstacles that you've had to overcome in, in those efforts. And then what are some of the victories that you've had on, uh, on that front? So pushback, I get a lot of pushback from even the libertarian party. I think that there's a lot of people who claim that they want freedom for everyone, but freedom for everyone doesn't include people that don't look like them. Um, I can't say that I've been a victim of of some sort of, uh, you know, I've never been discriminated against, maybe as a woman more than anything, especially a woman in business, but never for my Hispanic roots. Um, I've, I feel that I've been very lucky, but there's a big pushback, again, um, even amongst libertarians with oh, being open borders or, or you know, I, I just don't think that freedom should begin or end depending on where you came out of your mother's um, belly. <laughs> um, you know, if, if it's across this line, then freedom is for you. But if it's across this line, well, then, you know, you, there's nothing for you. Um, that's been the really big pushback. And then the victories is this, is this community of people who have been ignored, right? Republicans and Democrats are like, those Hispanic people over there, they'll come vote for us every four years. And every four years they come out and they're like, you need us because we have the policies that you care about. And it's like, well, what policies are those? And they're like, you know, all of them, all of the ones that you care about, we're going to one day work on immigration. We promise you that. And then it never happens. You know, they always talk about these things and it never quite happens. So the biggest victory for me is being able to reach out to these people and be like, I get it. We don't come here. We don't leave our countries because we're like, living a grand life somewhere. I'm sure your family didn't come to America because they were living a grand life in Mexico. And we're like, you know what I want to do tomorrow? I want to cross the border and go struggle. That's not how it happens. People leave their country because it's the last resort. You know, again, I I lived in Venezuela for a long time. All of my Venezuelan friends are out of Venezuela and they're living across the world in many countries from Greece to Spain to here in the U.S., to um, Colombia, to Chile, you know, people had to leave their country because it's such a miserable conditions. And I want to see more Latinos that are in that same space that are saying, there's got to be a place where we can, you know, where we're accepted and where there's freedom and where we can go build this, this future. And yes, it's right here in America. We need people. Um, economics being what it is, you need growth of a population to sustain all these things that we have. And in America, we, every year we have less and less children being born. So somebody's got to work. You know, we have a Ponzi scheme with Social Security. Well, if we don't bring in more people, who's going to pay for the Social Security when we're older? I don't advocate for Social Security. I think it's a huge Ponzi scheme and I don't want it. But for the people who are, you know, no, we don't need immigrants. No, we don't need this. Well, at some point you're going to realize you do. So my big win has been, you know, reaching out to Hispanic people, not only in the U.S., but Latin America. I mean, people like you said that I'm, I'm a, a big Latina advocate, but 
I mean, there's some amazing people. We've got Gloria Alvarez, who now is living in Mexico. We have Antonella Marti, who's here in America, but she's um, from from um, Argentina, and she's very popular and mm. very well-spoken. There's a group now of Lola, which is Ladies of Liberty, and um, Ladies of Liberty Alliance, and they they have chapters all over Latin America and in Spain and in Canada. And so it's not just what I've... Um, managed to do here in the U.S. It's this connection, this this freedom, sisterhood, but it's also, uh, uh, you know, just everybody. There's not just women. There's plenty of men and bringing people that believe in that freedom um, so that more people like us, right? We can see people like us reflected in these these ideals and be able to look up to them and be like, mira esa persona, you know? That person there, that person represents freedom and that person looks like me or, or has the same background that I do or has the same beliefs. And I think that's that's my proudest achievement right there. So the the immigration issue was the one that uh, pushed me more towards. Uh, so like trying to be in the Libertarian Party, I'm not, uh, you know, I've donated and stuff, but I've never gone to conventions or anything like that. I, I went to I was like a Ron Paul guy. So I went to all the conventions when he was running. But I, I, the, the immigration stuff was 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 the issue that always rubbed me the wrong way on how was I like was I, when I was at conventions, I would just kind of observe because I didn't, you know, I was just one of these. Oh, hey, vote for these delegate battles. And OK, OK, whatever. I was, But I was still there, like, you know, just observing. And man, you could just see the veins out of people about the immigration stuff. How uh, I don't know. Man, it, it just rubbed We're me the wrong way. about it. Yeah, it just rubbed me. I, I was like, man, what are you so upset about? What do? Like, what, what's going on here? It's, you know, but anyway, but so that pushed me like more towards uh, like more like libertarian because, uh, you know, they were the party that kind of seemed like, oh, uh, I could really just speak like, hey, you know, there's no beef with us or here. Like, we're you know, everybody is just a line kind of thing, just kind of more of that conversation. But, you know, there is a debate in the liberty movement about uh, immigration and the most recent uh the uh i guess uh uh like debate between like um uh, higher profile uh people in the in the party was uh you know uh spike cohen who ran for vp uh in the last uh race and then uh uh, uh dave smith who uh, is talking about running as for president and he's a uh, like a, a comedian and you know uh, i even like um reached out to the the mark claire the lions of liberty guy you know and i you know i i, I bought a little advertisement because i uh, I'm at, I'm trying to advocate the like kind of like the Latino style of like liberty where, you know, I'm trying to say, hey, you know, there's a whole group of us out here that listen to like all these corridos that are basically saying like, fuck the federal government, even if, it, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of people that seen these corridos and they don't like the go, you know, like, you know, hey, no. you know, we're, he- <laughs> we're, we're here, you know, but nobody speaks to them kind of thing. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. So my question is kind of like, what is uh, like your general stance on the immigration issue? And then also if the term open borders strategically might need a, a, a facelift or an upgrade, uh, because uh, I feel that the open borders uh, have might have that phrase already might have so much uh, negative weight on it that we can say it a little differently if we maybe play with words a little bit, but uh, that's just a question to you and maybe st- strategy since we're kind of on the same team of what we're trying to right. do here with, 
what I'm doing here with the Libertinos and all this stuff, you know, the, it's a play on words. Right. But, uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, so, uh, general immigration stance and, uh, you know, the, that, that phrase open borders, which everyone kind of always, you know, grasp onto, and it has a lot of weight on it. So anyways, yeah, uh, go ahead. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think we're, we're spot on on this. Like I said, people don't necessarily just decide to upend their life to come to America just because they're going to get free things. And that's, it's almost painful to watch, right? They're like, oh, well, people come here because they want welfare. No, people come here because they want an opportunity to, to get ahead in life. So um, with that, I am a complete open borders person. And that's one of the things of the Libertarian Party of, of their platform that caught my attention, that I said, this is something that I agree with. Um, they agree. They have on their platform free migration. What does that mean? That means let's go back to the way it was before. We didn't have a problem, just like we didn't have a problem with drugs before prohibition. We didn't have a problem with immigration before the immigration laws. Um, You know, yeah, there's no magic number that the United States government pulls out of a hat and says, this number of people can come in. They just kind of wing it, right? They're like, we're going to accept 20,000 Mexicans. We're going to accept 5,000 Cubans. I don't know the number. Nobody does. It's just this, you know, this kind of arbitrary thing. And, um, you know, the economy, like anything else, can't be centrally planned. You cannot just decide on a number and that's going to be the right one. What do I mean with open borders? Let people come. If there's no jobs, if there's no anything, they're not going to stay here. They're going to move on to another country. They're going to go somewhere else. They're going to find these opportunities elsewhere. And what we tend to find with immigration, you know, this is a very um, economic heavy conversation. And most people having this conversation are not knowledgeable in this economic issue. And so they'll say things. And I did hear that um, Spike Cohen and and, um, Dave Smith uh, debate. Spike Cohen, of course, being on the side of immigration and Dave Smith kind of against it a little, a lot, you know, depends on how you see it. Um, You know, we we need to have this conversation of what is the role here? And and like I was saying earlier, immigrants come here and they build. So, for example, you know, maybe somebody from the Mexican community will come here and be like, I can make tacos and they, they make a little, you know, taco truck or they, you know, work in the fields or they're a doctor or they're whatever. That job doesn't just take somebody else's job. It actually creates more jobs. So in the case of a taco stand, for example, now they're buying produce and they're buying meats from an maybe American company, maybe another Mexican company that sells the things. They just created maybe more jobs. And then they have to hire people to help in the kitchen or, you know, serve the staff or whatever it is. And we just create more jobs. That's the problem that just gets me is when you understand the economics of it, and Miami is a fantastic sign of this. Miami, 50 years ago, before, or, you know, 60 years ago, before Cubans really started coming here, it was a very tiny town. There really wasn't, you know, it was confined to Miami Beach and Coral Gables, and there's very little going on. And now it is the seventh largest county in the entire United States with a budget that's over $9 billion. We, Latinos built this city. And so it's even like an oxymoron. People are like, we don't want immigration, but I'm going to go party in Miami because Miami has the Latinos and it's fire. And it's like, how do you not see this? How do you not see that this brings culture and it brings, you know, LA and and, uh, New York, all of these places with lots of immigration are our most entertaining 
fun places where, you know, there's movement of money and there's movement of ideas. Immigration is a net benefit to the country. It's a net benefit to the people. It's a net benefit to everything. So does it need a facelift? Yes, but not in the word of what we're calling it. It needs a facelift in that idea, that um, change of, oh, immigration's bad to how so? Name a negative for immigration. Maybe a terrorist comes in. You know what? Terrorists are coming in because we're bombing people in their country. I don't think that they're coming in because America's so free and we're allowing immigrants in. It's not like terrorists over in, I don't know, some foreign country like, hmm, their freedoms are too free. We need to go over there and take. No, (laughs) we create this with our policies of dropping bombs and killing people in their weddings. You know, you kill people's children or you kill people's parents. They're going to want some revenge. And we've seen this over and over and over again. And yet we're told we can't have immigrants because all these terrorists are just going to flood our our streets all of a sudden. And we can't have immigrants because they're going to take American jobs. Listen, if somebody who has a sixth grade education and doesn't speak the language can take your job, it wasn't your job to begin with. Let's just, you know, I, I hate to be so crude. And so, you know, oh, that's, yeah, that's right. But, but like- you, you if know you're what? A it's, doctor, it's some guy that picks in the field isn't going to take your job. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, PalomaVerdeCBD.com. It is a family-run business that my wife and I run out of our home. Uh, it, it is we've been we've had it for a little over two years, and the last year we have been strictly an online business. We've had our struggles, uh, but we've uh, persevered. And we have also recently added some new products uh, to our line. Uh, Of course, you know that we have all the edibles, uh, the tinctures, uh, all the salves and uh, 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 creams, sports creams, and uh, and some of the pet products. But uh, we've uh, added this time some, uh, you know, bath bombs, 25 milligrams each. There's four in this bottle. Uh, you know, be sure to take care of your lady or um, you could take care of yourself if you're that kind of vato, you know, that's cool, too. And also some uh, massage oil, once again, to take care of your lady or yourself. If you're that kind of vato, that's OK, too. <laughs> and uh, when we first started the business, if any of you guys are aware, uh, it was meant to help our fathers out. And at that time, the the stigma behind cannabis uh, products was still around here in our culture. Uh, our, our fathers weren't really up to it, but, you know, we kind of told them that uh, there was no psychoactive effects or any THC in the product. And then they have been uh, users of it and they've gotten a lot of benefits from it. But we've also listened to our uh, uh, customers and many of them have mentioned that They'd like us to bring in a full spectrum product because there are there are some uh, extra benefits sometimes through the entourage effect if you have some of the THC in it. So uh, we have a new uh, uh, full spectrum uh, tincture, twenty two fifty milligram uh, tincture bottle. Uh, so you can be sure to check that out if you're trying to get some of that. Um, plus all the other products that we have. So visit palomaverdecbd.com, use the promo code CHINGASOS at checkout, C-H-I-N-G-A-S-O-S for 20% off anything 
that you purchase, free shipping. So be sure to check it out. And I appreciate, uh, Vanessa and I appreciate any of your support. Get your products, take care of uh, your body and mind, and peace. But you know what? It's it's funny how the system, um, not the system, I don't know. So this was kind of something that, uh, so in preparing for the, uh, your you know, the interview with you, you know, I saw some of your interviews uh, and, um, you know, it's, so the paradigm of, 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 of the system, you know, I also want to be careful how I say this, but it's okay. So let me say this through the, my story, like through. So when I see somebody like a panhandler ask, uh, asking for money and I see an Anglo person, I say, man, you must have really had a bad time. Cause man, I'm bad. I don't know what to tell you, man. Like my bad. But if I see like a Mexicano, I'm like, pinche with war. You know, you know, you, you know, you can, you know, it, it's just in my head. I'm just playing, but it's kind of like, so the, so even like um, here in Texas, like I'm, I'm an advocate for Texas secession. So I kind of, uh, you know, and there's, and the Texas secession is movement. A lot of it still has some of the, we want to protect the border. So I automatically say, Hey, I'm down for that, but let's close. Uh, let's all, if we're going to build a border wall, let's build it on the Northern side too, you know, so we can, we can protect ourselves from these Northern rapists and, and I'll, you know, just, I just play with words, right. Just to, just to, just to play. And everybody always, Oh, well, what do you mean? No, no, you know, well, you know, why not? You know, if you want a border, why not all the way around? Why is it just on the one side that just happens to have a, a certain color tint coming over and not the other side? Yeah, I, I, I interviewed Alex Nawashta once from the Cato, uh, Cato Institute. And, you know, he's really good on this on this topic. And the one takeaway that I that I remember that that, that he really said, and and it's a good visual for me, was like he was just like, of course, they're going to uh, uh, find, you know, the drug dealers and the rapists and the because there's a border check line, but basically like if you just get the Southern border and just get that line of, of, of like the, 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 the border patrol and all that, and just put it anywhere in the country, anywhere in the United States, you're going to find the same drugs, the same stuff pass. It's just about that they're getting checked. So, uh, you know, I, I've always thought like, like, so those type of ideas don't like seem to penetrate. It didn't penetrate in the Repub- the way that I saw it in the Republican party. And I'm starting to see some of that too, even amongst the people that I kind of uh, hang around with, not, you know, that I kind of like the podcast that I like and stuff like that. But, you know, I also understand too, that like, it takes time to get people to see your point of view. So I don't go hard on it. And that's why I kind of like play a little bit with, uh, with, 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 with the angles that I have, but for sure, one thing that we all kind of agree on is that the drug war has been something that uh, is for sure a libertarian stance that we all agree on that should be completely eliminated. Um, uh, there might be some super hardliners that say, you know, you can't legalize all drugs, but for the most part, I think a lot of people agree on this. Uh, can you also kind of talk about, uh, which is which is not talked about, how the drug war uh, affects us uh, domestically, but how that trickles, not even trickles, like how that affects our foreign policy towards the 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 uh, our southern yeah 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 like, uh, well Absolutely. like central and south america and all that and cuba too i mean yes you know yes. people don't understand um what the drug war has done and and the clearest way that i think we can explain it to people is based on prohibition so everybody knows about prohibition right in the 1920s in the united states the roaring 20s we decided no alcohol for you and what happened well we got gangs we got you know, people like Al Capone and Bugsy Siegel. And we had, you know, this 
the police were cracking down. We now know that the government poisoned a lot of alcohol and killed people. So yay, the United States, right? Like this is just this insane idea that government knows what's better for us and they're going to protect us by killing us or, you know, hurting us in some way just so that we don't drink this one thing that they don't want us to have. So anyways, um, the creation of prohibition caused gangs, caused this thing, you know, caused people to shoot each other over over control of of the distribution of the bootleg alcohol, caused people to die because the alcohol was poorly made or laced with things. All of that, there's a parallel to all of that in the United States currently with the drug war. So drugs are now being laced with things like fentanyl. Drugs are now, you know, have been for the last 80 years that we've had prohibition. People will shoot each other over drugs. People will, um, you know, fight turf wars, gang wars. We have all these gangs. We have all these problems. It is exactly the same thing as the 1920s prohibition. And yet we discuss this with people and they're like, no, no, but drugs are bad. Therefore, we should keep this going. And that's only a small part of it. Then we have to look at the incarceration rates. We have to look about how much money is taken from each and every one of us in our taxes to support the police state so that they can make sure to crack down on these drugs. We support, you know, the jail system. We have people in jail, you know, even a few years ago, getting a 40 year sentence because you had a possession of a lot of large amount of cannabis. What's a large amount of cannabis? It's a plant, right? You have a large amount of a plant, but we're going to give you a 40 year sentence because you may possibly hurt yourself. So we're going to make sure you hurt yourself. Like, is that what the U.S. government is saying? So I think that there's, you know, a lot of people just don't think this through. And I was guilty of that. And I think most of us are. You aren't born with this idea of liberty. I really haven't met a whole lot of people that are just like the moment that they learn to speak. They're like freedom. You have these beliefs. They're passed down. And then one day, maybe you discover freedom and you're like, hmm, that that the way I thought about that wasn't right. So I. I tell this to people because I hope that they see that um, once they see this, once they see that freedom, once they, 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 they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So what would happen if drugs were legal and you could go into a CVS or a Walgreens or, you know, whatever and buy cocaine, buy whatever. Well, you're not going to have people overdosing on, you know, fentanyl because now they're going to know the exact dose that they can take. And they're going to take drugs that are clean. Again, this happened under prohibition. People would buy alcohol or get alcohol somehow, and um, they'd die because it was poisoned, because it was made poorly, because of whatever. Same thing is happening now. And every time a drug becomes illegal, something stronger comes out. So it started off with like marijuana and then maybe cocaine and then cocaine became crack. And then crack is now, you know, fentanyl. And you've got like, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So the problem is the same problem we had 100 years ago. We're just pretending that it's different. And then how does that affect Latin America? Well, very simple. The United States was like, we're not going to have this thing. You can't have access to drugs. And then the rest of the world is like, oh, we have it. The United States is like, not so quickly. You too have to go through prohibition. And we forced every country pretty much to go through this, especially Latin America. The United States had a lot of power in this. And... Um, what happens in Latin America? Well, if you're a poor farmer, uh, you're going to want to, you know, maybe growing tomatoes doesn't feed your family enough, but growing this coke plant or growing, you know, cannabis or growing poppy seeds or whatever the drug is makes you a lot more money. 
And then we have the gangs and the cartels and you have the FARC and you have la MS-13, La Maratrucha. You know, you, these things happen, same as in the United States, same as with, you know, the 1920s prohibition. We're, it's a repetitive pattern, but it's even more sinister because in Latin America and in Cuba, for example, we have a narco regime. Colombia, Venezuela, um, Nicaragua, all of these countries have these huge, massive cartels and gangs that get drugs into the United States. In the United States, we are the largest consumer of drugs. Latin America is the largest producer of drugs. So you got to get it to us somehow. And a lot of drugs come through Mexico because we obviously share a huge border there. But then that doesn't account for all of the drugs. We have a lot of drugs passing through the Straits of Florida through Cuba into Florida. And why do I mention this? Well, because in order to get through there, the Cuban government has like a little checkpoint. And they're like, you come through here, you pay us a lot of money. So our drug policies are fueling the communist regimes in Latin America. Our money, our drug money that we're paying, all of our, you know, our, our politicians then go spend money and give money to Venezuela and Cuba and all these places to help their problem. But what they're doing is they're funding this regime. And um, it's it's a vicious cycle. We just kind of go round and round and round and round and, you know, more people in, in, in jail. And then we need bigger jails and we need more money spent for the police state. Um, we now have police stations all around the country with massive tanks. Who are they going to go after with this? You know, they've got riot gear. Uh, they've got all this stuff because we just keep escalating. And nobody's standing here saying, hey, guys, you have it all wrong. You have it all wrong. You just do. And we need you to take it a step back and take it a notch down. And let's start legalizing things and see how it goes. Cannabis is a great example. Um, even though the regulations are steep, you don't see a whole lot of people shooting up on corners over cannabis anymore. Now it's other drugs. Why? Because you can go in most states. It's now in 38 states. There's some sort of either medical, recreational, or just, you know, whatever for cannabis. And so you can just go to a dispensary. You're not going to go risk your life with some weird, you know, drug transaction in the in a back alley anymore for cannabis. Are you kidding me? You're going to go to your dispensary or you're going to, you know, it's not so illegal anymore. Maybe you have somebody that will deliver it to your house. Who knows? The point is, the more we show that freedom leads to less problems, I think the more we can win over people. Just going back to that, nobody's born with this idea of freedom, you know, um, you just, it's something that you're red pilled or orange pilled or green pilled or blue pilled, whatever the, the color is black pilled. I don't care. Um, you're black pilled into, into freedom. And once you get hit with that freedom feeling and that freedom thinking, it's hard not to see it everywhere. It's hard not to see how freedom just makes everything better. Uh, entonces, uh, antes que pensamos de grabar, te dije que iba a haber una pregunta o algo que podías a, a, a decirlo otra vez en español. Y bueno, tu respuesta era larga aquí, pero creo que es muy importante. Entonces, esta va a ser, a ver si la puedes decir otra vez, pero en español. La, la pregunta era, <risa> la pregunta era que uh, la, las leyes contra las drogas aquí en Estados Unidos, lo que pasa aquí con la con las leyes aquí y cómo afecta uh, también uh, la, la póliza que, 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 que pasa en, en, la, en, en, en los países uh, de, de Latinoamérica. 
Ok. A ver si puedes. Okay. You know, claro, si... lo, lo trataré de hacer más rápido porque creo que me, me llevé mucho tiempo en, el, en el, la respuesta anterior. Pero bueno, eh, ¿cómo afectan las pólizas? Eh, la política de las leyes contra las drogas en los Estados Unidos. Eh, la, man, la manera más importante que, que sucede es que nos cobran muchísimos impuestos para poder hacer un ataque en contra de, la, la, en contra de las drogas, ¿no? Eh, las drogas es igual que la prohibición que teníamos del alcohol anteriormente. En los años 1920 tuvimos prohibición de alcohol, el cual se veían las gangas y se veían los, los problemas con los grupos como el de Al Capone, como el de Bugsy Siegel. Los Estados Unidos tenían un problema muy grande porque el alcohol era prohibido. Al hacerlo legalmente, legal otra vez, nuevamente, Ahora podemos entrar en una, eh, la mayor parte de los Estados Unidos uno puede entrar en una tienda y comprar el alcohol bien, no, no, no hay que ir a un lugar a esconderse exactamente, uno puede ir y comprarlo como, como Dios manda, ¿no? Y, y recibir y, y comprar y no tienes ningún problema. ¿Cuál es la diferencia con las drogas? La diferencia con las drogas es, es que hemos dicho, no, no lo vamos a hacer y en vez, el, el, la prohibición del alcohol duró poco, duró menos de 10 años, pero la prohibición del, del, de las drogas ha durado más de 80. Y cada vez que llegamos a, a un punto, empezamos, le damos más duro, le damos más duro, le decimos a la gente, eh, no puedes hacerlo, ahora te vamos a mandar a la cárcel. Y esas cosas nos han llevado a la destrucción de la familia, nos ha llevado a la destrucción de, de comunidades, ha llevado muchas, muchísimas personas a las gangas, han llevado muchas personas a tener muchas dificultades en general. Eso es aquí en Estados Unidos, de nuevo, las cárceles aquí en Estados Unidos eh, las prisiones están llenas de personas, llenas de personas que simplemente eran adictos a, a una droga o que tenían posesión de una droga, que me parece una, un tema muy difícil también. Eh, eh, cuando uno es adicto al alcohol, aquí con, con mucho amor y cariño le decimos a la gente, vaya y busque ayuda en, en Alcoholics Anonymous, en AA. Pero cuando uno es adicto a las drogas, te meten en la cárcel y te dan 40 años de vida. O sea, es, es una doble moral, está mal. Y no solo eso, le estamos destruyendo la vida a la gente para que ellos mismos no se lo destruyan. Es casi ridículo lo que hacemos. Eh, con, en términos de Latinoamérica, pasa lo mismo. Muchas personas en Latinoamérica tienen que crecer estas, estas drogas porque eso es lo que les trae dinero. Y se, vuelven, se involucran con las gangas, con, con eh, eh, la maratrucha, con, con la, la FARC en, 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 en Colombia, con qué sé yo. Todas esas organizaciones hacen que los, haya menos estabilidad y no solo eso, esas son las drogas que nos entran al país. ¿Y cómo pasa? Pasan a través de estos regímenes que son narcos, narcos regímenes, el de Cuba, el de Venezuela, el de Nicaragua. Ellos reciben el dinero al pasarlo a los Estados Unidos eh, para entrar las drogas a través de, de, de la Florida, por ejemplo, tienen que pasar por aguas en Cuba y pagan. Estas organizaciones pagan al Estado cubano para poder, recibir, para poder pasar las drogas. Le estamos dando dinero a lo mismo que decimos. Por un lado decimos no queremos, eh, no queremos estos regímenes. Nosotros creemos en la, en la libertad, no queremos dictadores, no queremos esto. Pero le estamos con nuestras pólizas dando el dinero. Entonces por un lado decimos no queremos esto, pero por el otro le damos el dinero. Entonces nosotros tenemos unas políticas muy equivocadas en este país y forzamos que los demás países nos sigan y hagan lo que nosotros le decimos. Hemos destruido la vida de cantidad de americanos por una planta, 
porque al final del día la marihuana es una planta, es más, es una planta que eh, la razón por la cual es ilegal es porque desafortunadamente los, los estadounidenses que estaban en, en cargo, eh, a cargo en ese momento, Harry, Henry Anslinger es el, el, la primera persona que, que, que estuvo, lo que ahora es el DEA, antes en ese tiempo era el, el Department of the Treasury, el, el eh, tesorero, eh, él fue el que dijo, y, y uno puede buscarlo, esto está libremente abierto en el internet, uno puede buscar donde él decía que la gente, la gente de color, los afroamericanos, los mexicanos sobre todo, eh, usaban la marihuana y, eh, y que íbamos a, a, a convertir a las mujeres blancas en que se acostaran con los hombres negros y que, y que por eso teníamos que hacerlo ilegal. Y de hecho usaron la palabra marihuana porque era una palabra slang, era una palabra que, 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 el, que tal vez era como... Él pensaba que, lo, que la gente iba a decir, uff, esa cosa, ese nombre, eso es algo muy mexicano y por lo tanto eso es malo. Y por eso es que usamos esa palabra, la palabra legítima de la planta es el cannabis. Sin embargo, todas estas pólizas, todas estas políticas son cosas que, que hemos hecho precisamente para hacerle daño a las personas. Y yo creo que la mayor cantidad de personas en este país que, y, y en Latinoamérica se dan cuenta de que estamos mal pero también tienen esa noción de que no, no, las drogas son malas y por lo tanto tenemos que pararlas. Y la verdad es que no hay nadie en esta vida que te puede decir a ti un adulto, a mí una adulta, lo que puedo y no puedo hacer con mi cuerpo. Es mi cuerpo, me pertenece a mí. Y así mismo como te estás tomando tu traguito, tú eres responsable, ¿no? Tú eres una persona que tú sabes tu límite, tú sabes lo que puedes hacer. Eso mismo pasa con las drogas. Y cada vez que ponemos algo más difícil de, de, de obtener, más lo quiere la gente. Y, y en vez de decirle a, a la gente, mira, tienes un problema con, con la cocaína, tienes un problema con esto, vamos a ayudarte, vamos a, quieres ir a un centro, quieres hacer una comunidad como, hey, no, 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 nosotros los metemos en la cárcel y les jodemos la vida. Y eso sí. me parece cruel, sumamente cruel. Sí. Uh, gracias uh, por eso, uh, Marta. Uh, And uh, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I'm going to be able to show the that that to uh, a lot of people. I'm going to have to clip that out for sure. Uh, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're almost towards the end of this. I want to be sure that I want to talk to you about your 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 Cuban efforts on the on the front of trying to uh, uh, send medical supplies and first aid uh, uh, supplies there. Can you uh, speak on that? Because uh, uh, from what I heard from you say in the past here a little bit that uh it's getting more difficult and more costly over time and uh um, maybe people you could also let people know how to kind of uh, help on that front if they're interested in that sure and that would be great so first let me go into what's the problem with cuba the, the style of the style changes with the, the, the latina it's, it's you know, <laughs> oh man that's you cool. know it's almost like double personality i don't know if this happens to you but you it speak does. one way in spanish and then one way in english And um, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, style. A, blessing. it's a blessing and a curse, right? I am still Martha, but when I speak in English, it's this way. And then in Espanol, un poquito diferente. You know what? It's a blessing to have two languages. I can communicate with people in two different, uh, two, multiple places in the world. I speak two of the world's top uh, languages. I love this. So anyways, going to Cuba. Um, for those that don't know, um, Cuba is a dictatorship. It's an island. It's a it's a prison colony. There's 11 million people in Cuba and they have zero freedoms. Everything is through their government. And we talk about Cuba and people are like, well, it's the United States embargo. The embargo is a thing. 
it's there, but it doesn't prevent a lot of things. Actually, the United States is one of Cuba's biggest trade partners. And this is a thing that I bring up a lot. Uh, the United States sends Cuba pretty much all of the chicken that they consume. Uh, the United States sends most of our medicines, most of the medicines that Cubans can get, they get it from the United States. So what's the problem? Well, it's the Cuban government. The Cuban government owns and controls everything. And, you know, if you go to one of the Cuban hotels, you're going to find food, you're going to find all of the things that we can, you know, that are creature comforts. They've got running water, they've got electricity, they've got air conditioning, they've got all the things. But the rest of the people in Cuba don't live like that. The average Cuban makes less than $40 a month. The average elderly person in Cuba that is retired, that can no longer work, makes $10 a month. Their canasta básica, the amount that, we, you know, at the beginning we talked about them having rations, la canasta básica is actually more than what uh, people make a month. And, and people in Cuba can't, um, they're not allowed to fish, to have animals, to have a garden. The Cuban government doesn't want Cubans to be able to feed themselves because that way they retain control, you know? So that's why Cubans can't uh, do a lot of things. And on July 11th of this year, uh, I'm sorry, last year, uh, 2021, the most amazing thing in the 63 years that Cuba has been going through this happened. And that is spontaneously around the island, people started protesting. And a large part of this was COVID. A large part of this was just the sheer frustration. And a very large part of that was the um, this group, this movement, uh, El Movimiento San Isidro, which were a whole bunch of artists that were being attacked. In the Cuban government, if you are an artist, it is an illegal activity. You cannot be an artist and talk about your Cuban government. And what do artists talk about? They talk about things that affect their lives. So you have rappers talking about, you know, the horrible system that they live in. Um, you know, some of my my favorite Cuban rappers talk about how, like, there's no water. They, they you know, no, no corre agua por las por la pipas, you know, no, no hay. Um, and, and there's no medicine. I know that Michael Moore did this documentary and people tell me all the time, but Cubans healthcare is just amazing and it's free. And then I'm like, where did you get your information from? Oh, well, Michael Moore. Well, Michael Moore visited two hospitals in Cuba and they were the one that Fidel and his family could go to Fidel and Raul's family could go to. And then the other one is for the elite, the elite echelon of Cuba, the, you know, the, in those places. We do have medical tourism. We do have ability to, you know, have treatment everywhere. Por cierto, Fidel didn't actually get a treatment in Cuba. You know, when people talk about how how our, the system is so amazing, well, then why did Fidel leave Cuba to go get treatment uh, when he was sick, right? So going back to the issue, Cubans, the average Cuban, they call it el cubano a pie, el cubano regular, the guy that lives like everybody else, one of the 11 million people that live, you know, their current life. They can't get access to medicine. Um, you know, I'm so used to here in the United States living here. I, I get a headache. I'll go to my, my cabinet and there's a bottle of Tylenol. Cuba, that doesn't happen. COVID happened and people couldn't get the most basic of needs. Azithromycin, the, the antibiotic needed to take care of your lungs for COVID. Like this was the one that was, was one treatment of azithromycin on the streets of Cuba on the black market was $300. Cubans, if you make $40 a month, that's your entire salary for the year, pretty much. I mean, there's you cannot afford medicine. And that's on the black market. There's no market. You can't go to a pharmacy in Cuba and find things. It just and, uh, doesn't happen. 
and it wouldn't be su- surprising if the the people that were importing it were like uh, government officials that had oh, no, yeah, connections, had connections, yeah. and then they just go down the line and they all make their money. You know, right? Yeah, well, that's exactly what happens. So you can buy things in Cuba if you have euros and dollars. You must convert it to the worthless currency that the Cuban government government decided, el MLC, moneda libremente convertida, and they call it a one-to-one with the U.S. dollar. It's not a one-to-one. Try using that MLC in any other country in the world. They're going to be like, what is this thing? We're not taking it. But if you go to these Cuban stores, you can buy these things. And what's being sold in those stores? Well, the humanitarian aid that the rest of the world sends. It doesn't go to the people. It goes to these stores. They've they've done tons of studies. You can see it. Um, Russia donated cans of tuna And it said on the label in Russian, not for sale, right? Humanitarian aid. But where do you find it? In the Cuban stores, in the Cuban government stores, usando MLC. So, um, you know, it's just this pressure building constantly. People are just so frustrated. You, You can't work. You can't feed yourself. You have nothing to do. And it just estalló. It was like a nuclear bomb. It just... And everybody went out onto the streets and they started protesting. The government started cracking down even harder. And um, we now have 45 children in jail. We have, um, you know, over 800 political prisoners, a lot of people that haven't been heard of. Um, you know, th- that song, I don't know if you heard it, Patria Vida became a Grammy award winning song. One of the artists um, from that song is in a Cuban prison currently dying. He's dying of starvation. So these are the things happening in Cuba. And I got so frustrated that nobody was doing anything. You know, our government's like, we're going to give them Wi-Fi. It's been a long time. No Wi-Fi has been provided to them. Um, they said they're going to provide humanitarian aid. Not really. Um, they said they were going to do all of these things. The polit- politicians just go blah, 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 blah and talk and, and nothing happens. And so, you know, I, I just I couldn't stand it anymore. And um, myself with a group of friends, we decided to start sending medicine to Cuba, which is the real way to call it is we were smuggling medicine into Cuba because I didn't want to send it so that the Cuban government would get their hands on it. I wanted to send it so that the people in Cuba know that there are people that care about them. There are people that want them to do well because there's a lot of propaganda, not only about Cuba, but within Cuba. In Cuba, they like to say that the U.S. government, we hate them. Oh, man, do we hate those Cubans? We want to see them miserable. We're, that's why we have a blockade, because we hate them so much that we don't want them to have anything. And Cubans believe this. So one of the, you know, this is a humanitarian mission, but it's more than that. It's it's a building these bridges uh, of, of, you know, peace with Cuba. So we started sending medicine. A lot of people donated to our cause. A lot of people gave us money and, and, and medicine. And I was only going to do it temporarily. So I didn't send up a, stand up a nonprofit. Um, and now I've realized there's this huge need and people like it. So I'm in the process of standing up a legitimate nonprofit. Um, it's called People for Cuba. We do have a little, little bit of a website, but we're in the process of building it and making it better. Um, Reason Magazine just did an interview of myself and other people that are part of this and you know, it, hopefully in the next few weeks, it'll be out. So more people will know about this. And what we do is we smuggle these drugs into Cuba, drugs, meaning um, antibiotics, Tylenol, you know, the things people need, masks, gloves. We've been sending medical supplies for hospitals, for doctors to be able to, to help patients, to be able to, um, you know, 
man, it's just, it's such a depressing situation. If you need your blood drawn in Cuba, you have to buy your own needle somewhere and they don't sell it in any stores. You got to find somewhere on the black market to get a needle. If you are a diabetic, there's no insulin. If you, um, you know, just the other day, a family member of mine went to the hospital and they said uh, she wasn't eating. She's elderly and and very sick and, and has maybe a little bit of anxiety or mental, I'm not sure. And um, she just decided to stop eating. And they told her, ma'am, you're going to have to start eating because we don't even have an IV to give you. Like we don't have a saline solution bag so that you don't die of hunger. The situation is dire. I mean, I, I the, and nothing I say can, can just signify the, the utter devastation there is in Cuba. Um, you know, like I said, just today, I, pub- I posted something on Twitter about how the difference between North Korea and Cuba is that the Cuban propaganda machine is big. It's going strong and people believe it. And I've gotten pushback from people saying, Martha, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You just don't. You know, the, the Cuban government, everything's wonderful in Cuba. Have you seen their beaches and their tourism and Cubans can can travel back to Cuba? And it's just mind blowing to me. Where else in the world do we have children 15 to 17 year old in jail because they decided to protest their government and they were given 20 year sentences. If that happened in the United States, if we took a child that, you know, 15 year old off the streets for protesting and put him in jail for 20 years, the world would have heard about it, you know, but yet because it happens in Cuba, it's kind of like, it's not a big deal. So I think that, you know, we need to open up our mind and our consciousness to what's happening in Cuba and talk about it. We've done a poor job of, of describing to the world what happens in Cuba. And that's been our fault. As a Cuban community, we haven't done a good job, a good enough job. And it's time that we have this conversation. It's time we tell people this is happening. It's happening 90 miles from our shores. You know, the United States, we're super excited to go get into war with Ukraine or Russia over Ukraine, you know, which is 9,000 miles away from us. But we've got somebody 90 miles from our shores. From Miami, it's 260 miles. It is closer. Cuba is the tip of Cuba is closer to us than for me, Miami to Orlando. I mean, our capital in Tallahassee is a nine hour drive. It's it's really far. Um, Cuba is a lot closer to me than Tallahassee. So this is something that really matters. And here in Miami, we're the capital of the Cuban diaspora. I call this the capital of Latin America, actually, because we you know, we take in everybody here and I think everybody here should be welcome. And um, that's that's pretty much what's going on in Cuba. And if anybody wants to get involved, the website right now is kind of crappy. Please uh, forgive me. I am not a, a somebody that knows how to use a, um, how to build websites or anything. So I finally managed to uh, hire somebody to help me with this endeavor. And, um, you know, we're, we're building the 501c3 so that we can um, take donations that are actually tax deductible for people. And um, we're just going to keep doing it until Cuba is free. I'm, there's no end in sight. I, I can't just walk away from um, this thing, this this need that people have, you know, on top of everything. I think we're we're humans at heart. And just because they live in a place different than us and just because maybe they're not the same or they don't look the same or they don't speak the same as Americans um, doesn't mean that we can just you know turn our backs on people that need us. Yeah. So that definitely speaks to uh, your heart that you, ha- you know, the heart that you have like for service. And so right now too, you're currently running uh, for commissioner in uh, Miami-Dade County. Uh, I don't know the, the, the how that it works out there. I mean, um, so we, well, here in San Antonio, we have like city council people. I don't know if it's the same. I don't know if you can kind of give me a vibe of that and then kind of talk about 
you know, while you're running the issues there, your opponent or, you know, any, you know, anything you got on that front and for sure, uh, then just uh, let us know how, if anybody's interested, how they can help you. Uh, Yeah. So um, what is a county commissioner? Well, it's the highest level of local government. Um, Oh, it's it's, for the county. That's right. Okay. That's the county. The county. Yeah. Miami has council people then probably. Right. But the county is a, is a different or Um, we have Miami Dade County and then we have the city of Miami. So there's many, there's actually many cities um, in Miami. We have multiple Hialeah. We have Coral Gables. Like we have a lot of cities. City of Miami is a thing. Um, I'm running for countywide. Um, So this would be one of 13 people that run all of the financial decisions of Miami-Dade County. We The only position really above this seat is the mayor, the mayor of Miami-Dade County, which currently is Mayor Daniela Levincava. So this position is a very large one. We would decide the $9 billion budget that Miami-Dade has. Mm. What are the issues that I care about? Well, I'm an entrepreneur and running an organization is what I'm good at. Um, I'm not good at being a politician, which is... I. I can I can share with you that you can tell because I haven't done a good job of fundraising because I hate going to people and being like, please give me money, please. I promise I'm going to put it to good use. I'm going to run for the seat. I'm going to win. And I hope to make your life freer. Um, it, it sounds like a good idea. I just I hate asking, you know, as an entrepreneur, I ask people for money and then I give them a service or I give them a, a thing, you know, like they get a bottle of vitamins and they're, that's, that's the thing that I would sell them. And that's what I would ask them for money over this. I'm selling an idea and it's, it's a little more difficult for me to do it. Um, so what do I want to do? I just want to make Miami as free as humanly possible any way, shape or form. But the specific things are if we have to have a government, can we not make it the most efficient government we can have. So simple ideas. Um, and I talk about this often. I, I briefly was a real estate agent. I still have my license, but um, in real estate, one of the things that costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time is property searches. Um, you know, I just got back from the country of Georgia over by Russia, not the state of Georgia and um, the country of Georgia, all of their property is on a decentralized blockchain. What does that mean? That means that let's say we're going to, you know, I'm going to buy your house or whatever. Um, and we, after we've agreed and we've sorted out all the details and we've done inspection, we can go to the courthouse and, and, and draw up the paperwork. And within minutes, I know that your property really belongs to you and you can change it and exchange it to me. We cut out the, um, the, the lawyers, you know, doing the prop, the title search, which is thousands of dollars. And then it takes weeks. This is, you know, something that is very simple. Again, the country of Georgia did it and they've offered to help here in Miami if if and when I take on the seat. Um, they've offered to, to help me with the people that did it for them and be able to, to propose this for Miami. Um, that's one small idea. We need to be more efficient. Uh, people need to see what the commissioners are doing and where their money goes. I propose that we put um, all of gov- the government budget, everything from receipts, you know, everything that we spend on a cloud-based system where people can track the spending. Right now, if you ask the average Miamian, hey, well, how much money goes to X, Y, or Z? Nobody can tell you. The, the budget is three volumes big. It is this huge, massive thing, and you have to go through it little by little in order to get um, where money is going to. One example that I use all the time is the commissioners. The seat I'm running for is $6,000 a year. That's the paycheck. And yet this office for 13 people is $19 million. Well, where is that $19 million going? Nobody can tell you. So we have a lot of waste, especially in that that seat, but that's just one. Again, $9 billion. To put that in perspective for people, the entire country of El Salvador 
has a $6 billion budget. I mean, this is how huge Miami-Dade is. And that money is best served in people's pockets. I, I mean, no matter how much you love government and you want government services, $9 billion belongs in the pockets of people. And we're spending it on things. You know, we spend it on the airport and the ports, which are obviously very needed. But we are forcing people who maybe can't travel to pay for the cruising industry. You know, we're, we're, we, and you can lose your home. I think that's the part that I, I think people don't realize. If you don't pay your property taxes, you can lose your home. People who are renting, we talk about low, in, um, you know, low income housing. We need, we need more affordable housing. Well, one of the things that makes housing so expensive is property taxes. So we need to focus on these things that really affect people and be able to make it efficient. We have terrible transportation in Miami. We don't have a, a good system. And yet we're collecting a ton of taxes. We actually added a half a penny sales tax 20 years ago to Miami-Dade residents. We've collected over $3 billion. And yet we haven't spent that money on, in, on improving our infrastructure, on our transportation, on our things. We need to do the job that people have been running on and saying, I'm going to get this done. And then they don't do it. Simple things. I'm not saying to spend billions of dollars on fixing this. I'm saying we have the money there. Let's go ahead and do the simple things that would improve it. The logistics of, of running these buses, you know, adding an application. You should be able to use your phone to see where the next bus is coming from. Why don't we have this technology? That technology is already old. You know, the technology to be able to track our buses and, and do all of these things. Existe hace rato. We're just really behind on it. And, you know, again, how would if Amazon ran uh, in Miami, how would Amazon do it? You know, that's kind of where I'm going from. Let's let's let an entrepreneur get into the seat and see how we can best run it so that um, so that it's run better. I mean, who doesn't want to live in a place like if you have to pay taxes, don't you want it at least to benefit you and, you know, not be this this massive waste and this massive thing that is just miserable? That's what I'm running on. Perfect. Uh, thank you, Marta, for uh, coming on. Um where can people reach you and also reach you for your, uh, like your run and all that? Uh, please plug that in, please. Um, yeah. So I have a website at um, MarthaBueno.com. And I also have a, um, I'm on every social media or the major ones, Twitter and Getter and, you know, all of the things, um, Instagram, uh, TikTok, and I'm at Bueno for Miami. Um, and that's it. That's okay. the best place to reach me. Perfect. Thank you for coming on. And uh, maybe we can uh, try to talk another time. I had more uh, uh, topics to talk to you about, but, you know, time is time and uh, we don't have enough of it. But uh, thank you for coming on and uh, uh, appreciate uh, you coming on. Thank Peace. you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll edit it out there. Cool. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And I hope you feel like I respected your time. And uh, hopefully, Absolutely. you know, uh, I'll, uh, it won't come out this Wednesday. It'll come out the following Wednesday. And, you know, I, I have a little, I, I'm just starting to grow. I'm just started the, the podcast. So it's small, but I appreciate you coming on. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, thank you for doing this and for reaching that Hispanic community. It's super importante. Y you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if I went over on my, on my answers. I'm no, nah, no, nah, it was good. But, uh, Hey, you know what I wanted to talk to you about was that, uh, uh, when you were talking to Clint and you kind of brought up that little, like the, like about the Brown, right. The Brown people stuff. And he kind of, I knew what you were, you weren't saying you were, he was racist and all that. And his, and his way that he got defensive, but so I, I, I'm not really good with words, but that's what I was trying to say that, 
the paradigm is towards and against Brown. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, nobody gets upset about like, uh, uh, like, when, like, when like it, Russian, like Russian, Russian illegal immigration or, you right. know, it, it's all towards. So I knew what you were trying to do, but yeah, there, so we are going against that paradigm where if you say it in that way, you know, oh, you're calling me. No, 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 no. It's just that, but you know, it, it's a, it's a, but, I, uh, when I saw that I knew, which I knew, but you know, and then the comments and all the haters, all the haters were saying, but so we are going uphill, you know, I I need to say it. I'm not going to be politically correct just so that, um, you know, people are, are not offended by this idea, but it's true. You know, you see a blonde blue eyed person at the hospital. You're like, Oh, that person deserves healthcare. It could be Russian. You know, they could be Russian. They could be whatever. But the moment somebody who's looks different, you know, then it's a problem. That's why when when I did my interview with Zuby and I reposted his post, I said an immigrant and the daughter of immigrants because nobody has a problem with Zuby. Oh, Zuby, welcome to America. I personally, I tell him all the time, you're the immigrant that we all want. You know, you're you're you believe in freedom. You're hardworking. You look, you know, physically fit. Just all these wonderful things about him. Nadie le molesta. Todo el mundo, ay, Zubi, ven para acá. Claro, you know, of course you want him. He's, you know, he makes a lot of money and he's wonderful. Nobody was, nadie le molestaba cuando Melania Trump came here. You know, she's gorgeous. She was married to President Trump. It's great. Pero entonces, you know, Maria, no, Maria no, because she drains the system and then she's going to have 500 million kids and the kids are all going to go to school. You know, I know I, that's I, awesome. Yeah, no, no. So that, so what it is, what it is, and you know, I know it's like a, you know, Latino styles. You know, that's why I say like firing, fire, you know, chingazos and fire. It's it's too caliente. It's fire. So when you were speaking like you know Spanish, we were talking to, you know, I I know, I, you know, but some people can get scared of that style of like. So you know, hey, if you if if you know, I don't know, you know, you know, uh, I hope you kind of do more stuff and you're more visible out there. Uh, like, uh, you know, and if you have more ambitions for something higher, even if it's like in the, you know, know. whatever it is, like, man, I mean, I love politics because I want to help and I see yeah, the problems yeah. with it, not because I want to, like, take over people's lives. Like, I want to take over people's lives no, to leave them the fuck alone. <laughs> but, but, but the, 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 but I, guess, I don't uh, want to be. No, 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 pero la, como se dice, bueno, what is, uh, la pelea. So on a debate stage to have an energy like yours would be kind of like, oh, shit, she's throwing chingazos. She is. Oh, laying down. So, so, oh so, my God, I would love so that's to what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. You know, you know, like like that kind of fire, like everybody would be like, like the next day, everybody would be like, what the like, what the fuck happened? Did we all get novella slapped on that? debate? Like everybody, you know, oh, man, something I, like that, that you so know, great. So that's what I mean. That's what I mean. I'm, I'm not. You know, and I notice that it's a skill. The more I go on these shows, the easier it becomes to like be able to talk about the ideas. I'm no longer like, oh my God, what are people going to think? So that's why, that's another reason. Like, obviously I want to get my ideas across to people, but I'm also using all of this as practice. Yeah. The more I, I develop these ideas and I say them, the better I get at it. Yep. So that's really my my ambition here is to get better at it. Como dices tú, para poder ir a hacer un debate y limpiar el piso. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, because I think that our ideas are good. You yeah. know, I think libertarian ideas are good. ¿Quién no le gusta la libertad? Yep. Yeah, no, no, I hear you. So, yeah, I'm on the same team. So, yeah, so uh, thank you for coming on. And uh, hopefully we uh, keep, you know, keep in touch here, here, here and there. And 
and uh, and uh, absolutely uh, okay. Oye, Peace. suerte con el podcast. Cuídate. Okay. Thank you. Later. Bye.